Okay. What is up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia here with Shuan Humes for episode 218 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I want to thank you again, as always, for taking the time to check out this show right afterwards or do it on the next day, days later, whatever that may be. We always appreciate your support, so please be sure to like, share, and subscribe everywhere that you find us. You can always check out our content over at the flagship at MMARatings.net and .com. You can search us on all um, podcasting platforms at MMA Ratings Net, which includes Apple, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. Hit us up on YouTube at MMA Ratings as well, and also on Instagram and Twitter at MMA Ratings Net in both spaces. Me, you can catch me at rgarcia underscore sports, and Shawan, you can hit him up at Black Durham Green. But we're back. So, Shawan, man, why don't you let everybody know how you're doing? As always, uh, I just like got back from training to somebody, but the rain was so bad, it took me like almost two hours to get home. So it was awful, man. Let me. Uh, what do you think about the NBA and their the issues with getting the vaccine? Well, I like I don't even really think it's you can say their issues with getting the vaccine because ninety percent of the league is vaccinated. It's this ten that this loud ten percent that's making it seem like there's much more people that are not. It's it's always weird to me, like. Like somebody said this on Twitter, and I echo that sentiment. People are like, why do I have to do my research? And I'm like, what kind of research are you doing? Like, they're millionaires, so they could probably do research. But I'm like, are they really doing research, or do they just not want to do it? Or is it just like a superstition? And I'm not for or against it. Do whatever you want to do. But when they use that statement that I'm going to do my own research, you know, I'm like, basketball is your area of expertise. I'm not saying you can't know more than that. But are you putting in the time and the hours and the days of research to understand these things? Like, actual scientists and doctors. So it's, it's just always weird to me when they go to that, I'll do, I'm gonna do my own research. Like one, are you doing it? And two, do you have the capacity to process the information correctly in this research you're trying to do? And it's like, what I always crack up at, crack up with is that if I wanted to learn basketball and let me think, um, Bradley Bill was in front of me, he would be an expert on how to teach me how to play basketball hands down. There would be no one else to go to. I would never go to him to ask about vaccines or something like that. So why does he think any type of research he can do can trump any of that that actual scientists and doctors and medical professionals have done? But Exactly. And you know, NBA players are like, all these people aren't basketball people. They talk about the league. This guy's talking about basketball, but he played on his JV squad. Well, most of y'all have a squad of diseases and vaccines and medical stuff of that nature. So why are we listening to you? Like, why does your opinion have any say? If if the JV basketball player can't comment on what, how to play in the NBA, then why is somebody who's not even JV as far as medical information and scientific research, why do they get to comment on something? Like, it's the same logic. It's just weird to me. It's very weird to me. Very true, sir. Very true. So let's hop into today's show because I want us to start with UFC 266, which was this past Saturday first. And it was a very big, very big card. I um, had to watch it in the rear. I did not catch it live. Uh, but there was a lot of action that really went down. We're going to jump right in talking about Alexander Volkanovsky defeating Brian Ortega by unanimous decision, first and foremost. And it was a very tight, it wasn't a close fight, but it was a tight fight. Volkanovsky was in some bad spots multiple times in um, that contest, but he found a way to survive and he really put the hurting 
on Brian Ortega. We're going to talk about that in a second. But what did we learn about Volkanovski with this win, Shawan? Was this a win that was this a statement win for him, or did you see? Or did we come out of this fight knowing what we already know? Um, the only thing I would say people did know is how he would really respond to adversity, like real adversity, not just getting hit and getting rocked, but actually being in a situation where, in his own words, he th- thought he was going to lose his title. Like, a situation, because when you get hit, you know, you, even if you fall, you cover up for a little bit, the ref will give you time to kind of get your wits about you and figure out what you're going to do. When you're stuck in that submission, all you can do is fight for everything you have, and sometimes it's good enough and sometimes it's not. But it was very clear that he was going to go out rather than tap out. And the fact that he was able to persevere and find a way out of not just one submission but two – um, it kind of told us that, you know, even if he's in a rough spot, he's willing to go past certain limits to defend that title and to get the win. Outside of that, uh, he showed technique. We knew he had that. He's a very physical fighter. We knew he had that. He has a great gas tank. He throws a lot of volume. Uh, he breaks guys down with a trit, a trit of damage and um, cardio, pace, and physicality. Uh, that's all the stuff we already knew. I mean, not many people saw Brian Ortega winning this fight for the very reasons that I'm mentioning. So um, the only thing we didn't know is if Ortega got him into a dangerous spot because Ortega is a world-class finisher, would Volkanovski be able to navigate it? And then we found that out today. Uh, excuse me, Saturday. Sorry. Yeah, he was definitely able to navigate it. He got out of some tough positions. As you were saying, he really was candid about how close he was to losing that title. Um, with this victory, though, I see a lot of people talking about he deserves to be number one on the pound-for-pound pound list. I think that's a very tough argument. Um, in my opinion, Kamar Usman is my number one right now. Um, and, I, I mean, you could, in my opinion, you could have Volkanovski in your top five. But I don't think you can put him in the top I don't think you can say he's number one right now. I mean, I would even – I still stand on my on my soapbox that Amanda Nunez isn't getting a lot of um, praise as she, as she should on the powerful power list for what she's done. But Volkanovski as number one, where would you put him in your powerful power rankings? It's kind of weird because the same argument I made for Nunez, I can make for Volkanovski being number one because if you go back and forth – Based on their divisions, Nunez fought the better, the bigger, the more accomplished, the more successful, the more tenured opponents. Beating a Holly Holm, a Cyborg, a Misha Tate, even a Jermaine Durandamy, who was a champion in another weight class, is more impressive than beating Yoba Burns, who never won a title. Beating Jorge Masvidal, who for the most of his career was a dangerous journeyman. Beating Colby Covington, who at best was an interim champion. And beating... Tyron Woodley, who, even though he defended the belts a lot, was not considered one of the best or most talented champions of all time. The same logic goes for Volkanovski. He beat Holloway twice, and Holloway, to most people, is no worse than, what, the second best featherweight, maybe the best? He beat Aldo, who was the best, so he beat the two best featherweights of all time. And then he beat the guy Ortega, who was pretty much, who worked his way up to be the number one contender twice. In, in a vacuum, those guys are better fighters and more accomplished fighters than the guys that Usman has beaten. On the opposite side is Usman's shown a dominance that nobody else has really shown. Maybe Nunes has shown, but Volkanovski had moments, had ter- had tense moments with Aldo. Volkanovski was almost finished by Ortega. So you could say that Usman has been more dominant and maybe recently more dynamic in his finishes. 
But if you actually go by their pedigrees and their resumes and what they've done and what they've accomplished, I'd have to say Volkanovski's faced a better opposition. Um, he's faced a better opposition, and and he's beaten tougher, more tougher, more accomplished guys. I mean, Aldo and Holloway, beating Aldo and Holloway is better than most guys' whole career of fighting. Who is compared Uzman? to who? Though? He has uh, better compared to, to the men. Or are you talking? Are you including Amanda in that well, conversation? Well, even even well, even with even I guess the only person the person who's got the most skins on the wall as far as champ former champions will probably be Nunes. You got Tate. You got Rousey, you got Home, you got Durandamy, and you got Cyborg. Like these. And Shevchenko twice too. And Shevchenko, but six. That's 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 six or seven of the best women's mixed martial arts of all time. She's beaten them. She beat beat Julia, but didn't she beat Marlos Kunin too? That's almost eight. I don't know if she beat Kunin. Maybe she did. But you know, it's like just just off those six, you know, she's beaten the very very best of the women's division. Usman's being the very best of the Wesleyweight division now, but they're not as good as they've been in previous years, and they're not as good or accomplished if you look on paper as the girls that Nunes has beat. And to be honest, those welterweights aren't as good or as accomplished as the two best featherweights that Volkanovski beat. Holloway was considered a pound-for-pound great. Volkanovski beat him. Aldo at one point was a pound-for-pound great. Usman has not beaten one former pound-for-pound great or one current pound-for-pound great yet. It's just been a bunch of really good welterweights. The only one you can make an argument for is Tyron Woodley because people really kind of had an argument that he uh, was number two on the list, maybe three behind GSP and Matt Hughes. But other than that, yeah, I would agree with you there. I I think that Volkanovski does have a um, stronger uh, resume than um, Usman does, but I will I will say I I, I still stand on the idea that um, Amanda Nunez doesn't get as much consideration for the pound for pound list, but she should based off of what she's done. Yeah, look on paper and look on the accomplishments of the opponent and their records and her and her accomplishments. It's not even close. Usman hasn't fought anybody who's been a multi organizational champion or UFC. I mean, the only UFC champion he's beaten is Woodley. He hasn't beaten any other UFC champion or any. How failed those signals, but he was a lightweight champion. Yeah, like once again, yeah, lightweight champion. But I mean, Nunes covers in two weight classes, so she can make that argument. He only fights in the one, so it's not like he was a lightweight and a welterweight. So you could even, ju- you could kind of justify that. Nunes can argue forty-five or thirty-five because she fights in both weight classes. True. Um. Brian Ortega, yes. he he had some big moments in this fight, took a lot of damage, Sean, a lot of damage. He's the first man to ever take 200 significant strikes in a row um, in, in two separate fights. And I saw that his suspension is up for supposedly six months. What do you do with him next? Do you... I don't think he should be anywhere near any types of fights, at least for the remaining of 2021, maybe not to mid next year. But what do you think the UFC is going to do with him next now that they saw him perform? He performed well, but he still took a lot of damage again at this point in his career. There's a couple of things. When he first fought Max Holloway, I had the same question he had against Volkanovski because Volkanovski had COVID. And I was like, well, if he's compromised, Ortega's going to get him. And just when he fought Holloway, Holloway had been having weight issues and canceling, pulling out of fights. So I said, if he's compromised, he's going to get him. 
But the thing about Ortega is Ortega is basically a big – he's like a, a football team who all they do is throw the 60-yard strikes. They don't have a running game. They can't do slants. They can't do short dump-offs. It's either they're going all for it or they're not. In between anything outside of that, they're completely ineffective. Ortega has these big moments of offense. He'll land a big, big right hand, a big kick. He'll grab a submission. But in between the rest of the time, he's not really consistently busy enough. He doesn't really throw volume. He doesn't really have a steady pressure. He doesn't really have steady counters. It's always these like big moments in the round, like a big one-two, a big body kick, a big right hand, a big submission, a big takedown. But nothing really that sets it up, and nothing else that nothing and nothing that kind of eases his way out of it. So the whole fight, Volkanovski is just constantly working. Body kick, jabs, crosses, leg kicks, inside leg kicks, outside leg kicks, body shots, body head combinations, clinches, takedowns. He's working the whole round, and he's basically outworking Ortega. And the worst part about Ortega is the when you have offense as dynamic as him, you can get by kind of by fighting in spots. But the problem is, in between those spots of offense, his defense is terrible. He doesn't have defensive awareness, and he doesn't have a lot of defensive maneuvers as far as blocks, slips, and parries. So in between not doing anything or not doing a lot of anything, he's just catching almost every single possible shot he can get hit with. And then he'll have one big moment, and that'll either turn the fight or it'll slow the, pre- the, the momentum Volkanovski had long enough for him to attempt to get control but when you have those big spots and you've been taking a beating for the entirety of the fight, even when you get a submission, can you really finish it? Because you've been taking a beating for three or four rounds. Do you have anything left to really finish it? Like, let's say Ortega took 25% less punishment. Maybe when he gets that submission, he has that little extra kick. Maybe when he falls in the other submission, he can just finish that because he has the energy and he has the freshness and the awareness to finish. But after that fight, he'd been taking such tremendous beatings, you know, I don't know that he had the I don't know that he had the power or stamina to really hold on to the submission to finish it because a second or two longer he finishes it. Now was it just Volkanovski working his way out or was it Ortega not having everything he could possibly have to torque that submission and finish it? And then so like his his fighting style demands that he takes a bunch of a punishment and his team has built their style around his style is built around him taking punishment, staying in a fight long enough to land a big shot or snatch a submission. If you look at all his fights, except for the Korean zombie fight, he's getting worked on the feet, he's getting chopped up, he's getting taken down, he's getting beat up, and he just snatches a submission. It's not 50-50, it's not back and forth. It's him getting outworked and then landing a big shot that turns the fight around. In this case, against an elite guy, much like in the same case with Holloway, when he had his moments, it wasn't enough. He landed some big shots in Holloway, it wasn't enough to dissuade him. He landed big shots on Volkanovski. It wasn't enough to dissuade him. And when he had a chance to finish him, he couldn't get the finish. So once he couldn't get the finish, the fight went right back to what it was before. Volkanovski hits him with five, six, seven, eight shots. Ortega hits him with one or two, maybe three. And Volkanovski's outworking him seven to three, ten to three. And he's just slowly chopping him down and beating him up and wearing him out. And Ortega is really too tough for his own his own good. His team, I don't believe, should have sent him out there after the fourth fourth round. I feel like this is the second beating he's taken that's going to take years off his career as a world-class athlete. And as far as what they should do with him, I think he should do the same thing he did before, which is um, take a long time off. Like after the Holloway fight, he didn't fight for what, almost a year, year and a half? 
Yeah, thinking close to two. Um, it's, it's interesting because I think I was just looking at the UFC rankings and I'm like, where, who could he face in a comeback? What should he really do? I think he should really kind of take the Calvin Cater approach. Calvin Cater has exactly. not fought since January of this year after taking a beating at the hands of um, Max Holloway. So um, I think he should really take that type of strategy and maybe sit out for close to a year as, as, as long as possible and find a way to take a, uh, maybe a top five ranked opponent if he, or even maybe lower, lower 10, 10 to 15. Like I do believe in um, kind of tune-up fights per se for people coming back in, into the UFC after an extended period of time away. Let me ask you this though. Let's say he did take a year off or so and he announced that he was coming back at 155. What do you think think his chances would be at lightweight? I mean, moving up in weight would probably the dehydration would obviously help maybe with absorbing the shots. I don't know that he can. I don't know how long his chin's gonna hold up making that extra cut down because he's a fairly big light uh, featherweight. So maybe the extra weight, the extra hydration allows him to take shots better still. But once again, you're facing guys who are much bigger. Like he's big for a featherweight. He's not big for a lightweight. And some of those guys are murderous punchers and strikers too. And he doesn't really have any defensive awareness. He, I can't, I can't think of a fight outside of the Korean zombie fight where he hasn't just been getting touched up by every single person he's faced. And luckily his physicality and his size and his chin have allowed him to navigate that. At 55, those advantages don't exist. It might be like Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee at, at, at lightweight, he, he survived an atomic bomb from Barboza. He took some huge shots from other fighters, and he was able to muscle through it. At welterweight, guys who aren't really punishing punishing punchers and strikers are knocking him around and, and having him on skates and beating him up and backing him up because he doesn't have that huge size advantage. So I don't know if Ortega's chin is just so good or if it's kind of a combination of him being a bigger, more athletically talented person at that weight class. You move, you move up to the lightweight, it's much bigger guys. Those shots carry a lot more power, and the shots that he lands don't carry the same power. So those guys, if he can't hurt them, they're really going to tee off on him because they have nothing to fear of what's coming back. So then it's, he's going to be taking the full extent, full brunt of their volume and their physicality and their power. And I don't know at this stage he can handle it. I would assume moving up would help, but I don't know, man. You take two beatings like that, and I know it's been two years, two or almost three years between them, but still, like – those, I mean, like, at one point, he couldn't even get off the mat. He had to be helped off the mat by his corner. And I don't know why the hell they sent him back out there, but that's what happens when you buy into that narrative. The same thing happened to Tony Ferguson. Oh, he can just snatch a submission. He's dangerous from round one to round five. Just because he's dangerous from one round one to round five does not mean he's going to win the fight from round one to round five because they're, they're banking on him just being able to snatch a finish, which means they're going to let him take every single moment of that beating mercilessly because they, they think he can pull it out in any last second. And it's, that's just a terrible way to corner someone. It's t and it's a terrible system to build in a fighter because it relies exclusively on them finding some opening and finishing. And against the most elite guys, you're not going to consistently be able to do that. Ask Tony Ferguson, ask Anthony Pettis, two other guys who have these huge moments of offense, which allow them to take over fights or win fights. I mean, Frankie Edgar is always my example of that. Someone who fought that way for as long as he possibly could, and now he can no longer do it. Um, let's move on, and let's talk about the other title fight on the card. Valentina Shevchenko. I mean, she continues to put her foot in people's ass, and there's nothing nobody can really do about it. 
Laura Murphy came out there talking a good game, but she was unable to get anything done. I think she landed 12 significant strikes in the entire fight, and she ended up getting finished at the end of the fourth, I believe. Shevchenko picked up another win here. All right, is it time to book the trilogy fight against Amanda Nunez? I am of the mind, you know, I've always stood by the idea that that the reason why they don't talk, they being the UFC, when they talk about promotion, uh, Shevchenko and they, and they promote her fights, they never talk about, they never clearly say she's been beaten by Nunez twice. They never clearly say, say that. They, even for Nunez nor Shevchenko, they never show any highlights from that fight. Either one of those fights. They've been in, a round, they've been in the cage together for eight rounds. What is that? Um, 40 minutes or so, and they never yeah. use any of those highlights in, to promote either one of, the, of, of these two women. I, and I, I purposely have a belief in because that they don't want to show any um, chinks in uh, Shevchenko's armor. So, or, or chinks in whatever, whatever the, the, the saying is. Do you think it's time to make that that third fight? Um. I don't. I mean, both of them are in divisions where they're clearly far and away above everybody else. And for Nunes is she's been going between forty-five and thirty-five, and I keep wondering when that when that weight is going to catch up to her because a lot of Nunes's success. She's a good fighter. She's a smart fighter. She's well schooled, but a lot of her success is that physicality, that explosiveness, that dynamic durability and strength and and power. If she gets ever compromised. And I keep I keep thinking personally. I think making bantamweight is compromising her. That Durandamy fight made me think the same thing. Um, when Holly Holm fought her, Holly Holm was trying to push her pace, and I think Holly Holm believed that be, making the weight class is compromising Nunes, and Nunes can't keep a pace. I don't believe that Nunes can actually keep a pace at bantamweight. Featherweight, yes. At bantamweight, I don't think she, she's never been able to really before. And I think really now that she's been taking the extra weight and cutting and not cutting and then dropping back down, I think it's compromised her. And I feel like, let's say she beats Pena. That fight with Shevchenko is not going to happen for another at least six to eight months. So then she has to make the weight again. She's only getting older. She's only getting bigger in a sense. It's a perfect timing for Shevchenko because the, the physical tools should be a little bit more evened out. Shevchenko's rounding into form. And it sells. But for Nunez, I don't know that I want to do that. I've already beaten her twice. What is beating her one more time going to do? Is it that big a payday? I don't know. And she's going to be coming up in weight. She, she, she'll be a little bit fresher. She'll be a little bit sharper. She'll be closer to her peak physically. I'm not sure that Amanda Nunez is, is anywhere near her peak anymore fighting a Bantam weight. She's just so much better than everybody else that nobody can really last long enough to expose her. But even with her physical advantages, Shevchenko, Nunez has never been able to just dominate Shevchenko. It's never been an easy out. And I feel like if Nunez tires or shows some hesitation or isn't 100% on point, there's a good chance that, that Shevchenko could find something and find a way to win if she's not on point. If she's on point physically, it's it's going to be the same fight it was the last time. New I, think, I think that we're at a point where, um, like you were saying, Nunez is on a career downturn slowly but surely, not saying she's – past or prime or wherever you want to put that in a yeah. negative sense. But she's definitely more on the downturn than Shevchenko is on 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 her up. Yeah. I think if they fight a, a third time, Shevchenko wins that. But that one victory doesn't negate everything that happens in the other two. 
And unfortunately, we live in a space where the promotion of MMA would would present it in that fashion, or in that, in that, in that fashion. And that's just something that I can't really sign on to um, for the reasons that that's how MMA or UFCs in, in particular promote certain people over others. And that's not something that I want to see and really kind of be a part of because Amanda Nunez deserves more praise and more, um, she needs, she should be revered more for what she's done in this sport, especially being, especially for wh who she represents from, from a marginalized space as well. And I don't want to see them put her in a position that they can quickly take that away from her because you know they will. The, the only one thing I will say that benefits Nunez for not mentioning this fight is because the UFC tries to build Valentina as a destroyer. They also try to build Nunez as a destroyer. In both of those fights, the second one was just awful. It wasn't, it was, it was tense, it was high drama because you didn't know who's gonna land the fight any strike or do enough just to win. That doesn't help Nunes' reputation as being this devastating force. The fact that she went nip and tuck with a with a flyweight. And secondly, the first fight, she actually had moments where she utterly dominated Shevchenko. But once again, she didn't finish her and she ended up getting gassed out. It was on, you know, hanging off your dear life just to finish that fight. Now, once again, that doesn't take away from her overall greatness, but by kind of downplaying that aspect of the story, you still get to see Nunez is this unstoppable juggernaut. And that's what they want to they want to sell it as, this unstoppable juggernaut of flyweight, this unstoppable dominant juggernaut at bantamweight. We haven't seen too many chinks in the armor of either one of them. But if you look back in that fight, you see Valentina being safety first, like she really is. She's a safety first fighter. Nobody wants to admit it, but it's true. She just outclasses everybody, so she doesn't look like it. And then you see a Nunez who gassed badly and was getting beaten pillar to post. And then in the second fight was actually trying to manage her energy and wouldn't take any chances against a much smaller and some people could say a less dynamic athlete. So it's like by ignoring that fight, you kind of can control the narrative that will help them get more buys and help them sell the fight better. Because that fight, those two fights didn't do either one of them a great deal of service as far as be looking untouchable or being untouchable as fighters. Yeah, I definitely really want Nunez to retire on top. Um, that's what I, I, I want to see. I don't think she has much more time in this sport, especially with her her and um, who's the wife? Nina Ansarov? Nina, 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 yes. Yeah, um, with their child being here. What else from UFC 266 stood well, out to you, Sean? Before, before we moved on, I, I wanted to talk about Lauren Murphy a little bit. I don't have a problem with Lauren Murphy. And, and no, I found out her I heard her corner was trying to be positive because that's what she wanted. I get that. You got to keep the fighter in a good perspective mindset. So I, I have no problem with that. My issue with this is Lauren Murphy's a good fighter, but she's a gritty, tough. She's very smart. She's very well prepared. She's very well schooled. She's very professional, but she's a limited fighter. And everybody knew that coming in. And that's why a lot of her talk, her talk rang hollow. Because if you look at that win streak she was on, she didn't really beat any elite fighters. She was beating up on third and fourth tier fighters and fight, some fighters who were just making their debut in the UFC. So this win streak she was on made it seem like she was a lot better than she was. And some people bought into that. Anybody who watches the sport knows that the win she was fighting, she was beating girls who had big holes in their game so that she could key in on somebody, something, find a safety zone where she could dominate. Against Valentina, Valentina doesn't have these huge holes. Like she's not the world's greatest grappler, but she's a good enough grappler slash athlete that you can't really make mistakes. Otherwise, she's going to control, grab, get you in position and just work you over. 
she's a good enough athlete slash wrestler that you can't just take her down or hold her down. And she's just a good enough striker, period, that you can't do anything on the feet with her. So when a lot of people start being extra critical of Lauren Murphy, that tells me, one, people don't know what they didn't know what they were watching when Murphy was getting these wins because Murphy eked by KGB. Andrea Lee. Andrea Lee's not a top-level fighter. She eked by JoJo Calderwood. Some people say she lost that fight. When she fought Valentina, the reason she looks so bad is because Valentina outclassed her in every single element. Lauren Murphy is in a dynamic striker. She can't just land one strike and turn the fight around. She's not an explosive athlete. You take her down. She's not like Jessica Andrade. She can just force her way back up in control position. And she's never been a technician as a striker. So when people said she was scared or she was gun-shy, it's not that she's gun-shy. She was just in front of somebody who didn't give her any openings. And she does, she's not the kind of fighter who can create openings against a certain caliber. So she's just over there getting beat up. The only option she had in that fight was to bite down and sell out. But Lauren Murphy knows, just like her team knows, if she bites down and goes after Valentina, Valentina will stand her ground if you really press her. And that's how you end up like Jessica I or, or Caitlin Chukagan just getting torched. And nobody really wants that. So I, I think people are being unfairly harsh to Murphy because Murphy just never had the physical tools or the skills to match up with what Valentina was going to bring to the table. She was just outclassed. It's essentially anytime I've sparred a decent pro in MMA, I know things to do. I'm not incompetent, but I can't, I can't make the reads. I can't make the openings. I'm not a good enough athlete. I'm not a good enough fighter. So the only thing left is how hard is this person going to go to embarrass me or put me out of my misery? Valentina's safety avert doesn't like to take risks. So she just outclassed her. But she could have put her way any way she wanted. And I don't think Laura Murphy should be looked down on for her performance. She didn't have any of the tools necessary to compete. She did the best she could with what she had. And she should be proud of that, regardless of how bad it looks for her. She should be proud that she got the title fight that she wanted. She gave the best she had. And that, that's all she could do. She was never in any position to win that fight. And there was nothing her corner could have told her to help her win that fight. Nothing. They might as well just tell her good job because there's nothing they can yeah. tell her. She was she was really outclassed as you you said there and that's I mean that's that's the 125 pound division right now if you look at it anyone against Shevchenko I mean even pulling up the top 25 or excuse me the top 15 in that division right now and it's um, Jessica Andrade who also won on Saturday but she lost to Shevchenko Caitlin Trufelli she lost to Shevchenko Lauren Sewer, Jennifer Bad Maya. Um, Cynthia Calvillo, she'll lose to her too. Um, she might be able to do a little bit on the ground, but if Jennifer Maya couldn't, she's a bigger woman, Cynthia probably won't be able to as well. No. Joanne, I don't know, let's see what Joanne could do on the feet, but what is she really going to offer there as well too? Um, I mean, Vivian Arujo, she, I don't know, I don't know too much about her right now, just Contrash, she lost to her. The only, like the names that stood out to me I'm looking to see what Miranda Maverick looks like in the future. Maybe we'll, we'll have something there. But um, Tatiana Suarez was the opportunity, but we don't even know if she's going to be able to fight again, especially coming off of a serious neck injury. Yeah, she had to pull out of a fight. She's supposed to fight Roxy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just, it's like, I just, I don't think people watch the sport well enough. And as you know, a lot of fans who watch MMA have never even, you've competed, I've never competed, I've sparred. But when you're in with somebody who's so much better than you, you you grapple with somebody who's world-class before. You're not a terrible grappler. You can't do anything with them. They're just picking what they want to finish. They're doing what they want with you. And it makes you look like you don't know what you're doing when it's just a matter of levels. 
Lauren Murphy isn't a bad fighter, but she made to, she was made to look incompetent, grossly incompetent, as was her corner by Valentina, because Valentina is so many levels above her. And last thing, in, in fighting sports, in regular sports, football, baseball, basketball, we all understand physical limitations. We don't get into the romanticism of this person can just be LeBron because he wants it. But in fighting, for some reason, people think that if you go hard and you're tough and you push a pace, that you can overcome anything. That is not true. There are harsh realities to athleticism and skill and durability and strength. Lauren Murphy is not anywhere near the class of Valentina. Valentina had to take this fight. It's a complete joke for Lauren Murphy to have a chance. And people say, look at Matt Serra and GSP. Matt Serra has always been a knockout puncher. He's always had a big punch. How did he knock out GSP, a guy who's been notoriously kind of fragile? Big punch. When has Lauren Murphy knocked anybody over a big shot? When has she just physically dominated anybody? It's never happened. So now you think she's going to do it against the best athlete she's ever faced in her life? Yeah. Good luck. Good luck with that one. I think they're just being too harsh on her. Definitely good luck about that. Um, as we move on to talk about the rest of the card, the only the fight I want to really cover is the Nick Diaz-Robbie Lawler fight. And all I'm going to say about this is that I'm 110% okay if we never see either of the Diaz brothers fight again. And I hate the fact that in MMA we push our legends, per se, to keep fighting at, at, at well beyond when they're the, their most uh, effective Diaz should not have been in that cage. And you see so many people talking about, yeah, we should be, he, he should fight again if we see him do X, Y, and Z. No, I would be totally okay without seeing Nick or Nate ever fight again. To be, I, and I, I'll be there right there with you. I will say, considering the type of, fight it, type of fight it was and how we've seen some other legends come back and, and pretty much get dominated, not even be competitive. Nick was surprisingly competitive. I mean, like, he wasn't just getting run over. He was counter. His boxing looked, I'm just going to straight up, his boxing looked a lot cleaner. He was landing clean counters. He was throwing body head combinations. He was, he was doing some work against Robbie Lawler. Regardless of what you may think about the end result or his, his mindset, now, obviously, his state of mind probably was not good. He, was, he clearly wasn't into the fight in a certain degree. But as far as his actual in-cage performance, I can't say that I've seen coming off a six, coming off of a six year six year break. He looked he looked kind of good to me. Six years off, I mean, Conor McGregor took two years off and didn't look good look that good against a, a world class opponent. And I know Robbie Lawler's not top shelf anymore, but Robbie Lawler's still a tough out for somebody. And and Nick Diaz put up a very good fight. He was holding his own. He eventually, I think the biggest thing is Nick's heart isn't completely in it he, he's gotten away from the sport for a while so now he's thinking about his well-being and and what his how it's going to affect him two weeks two months two years later so now he doesn't have that reckless abandon he's not willing to pay any price to win a fight anymore but as far as his actual striking skill set i thought he looked good and, and i don't think he quit because he couldn't take it i think he quit because he didn't want to take any more abuse which is another problem in and of itself but as far as how he fought i thought he did a good job if he was totally done, Robbie Lawler would have walked the pace Robbie Lawler set. He would have walked through him after the first three minutes. Nick actually looked pretty good against Lawler in an all-out firefight. Most people can't be in a firefight, even with Robbie Lawler now, for three rounds and look as good as Nick Diaz did. And, he, and in my opinion, he looked very good. He was openly talking about not wanting to be in the fight before the fight. Yes. So his mental, I, his mental I, issues, yes. I can't stand by and say, yeah, this guy should he he should keep fighting and he should still be in the cage when obviously he himself doesn't want to be in there, be in there anymore. Did you also hear some of the other stuff he was saying though? Like 
he was like, I had some business ventures that didn't go the way I wanted to. So is this like a money thing? Is this what his his management team is like? We need to get some money. We need to re-up the interest in the Diaz brothers, you know, so that we can get that going again. Because they've been world champions or like in the UFC, given all the the fan base they have, you would think they have some kind of business or some kind of line of whether it's weed or clothes. You think they have some kind of business where they wouldn't really have to fight because they're like cult figures. You know what I mean? Like they're very popular on losing streaks. They're popular on winning streaks. They're unbearably popular. It's weird to me that they don't have some kind of setup where they're not having to fight if they don't want to. Like they should be doing YouTube fights with Jake Paul and, and Logan Paul and making money off that. They shouldn't have to actually be in real violent fights with, with professional world-class fighters at this stage. They're too popular for that. Like who fumbled the bag? Who messed it up to where these guys aren't just living their lives and and, and being like Floyd Mayweather, you know, I'll take some exhibition fights. Like, I don't understand why they have to be in actual real fights at this stage, as popular as either guy is. I mean, that is a great point. I had no, no one's really ever asked that. I feel like no one will ever ask that or really even have the answers to that. But where, like, I don't want to say where their money go, but where, where, where are they at from a financial standpoint that they I need mean, to, that, that they have to continue fighting? Think about it this way. If Tyron Woodley gets two, what are you, $2 million to fight Jake Paul? Are you telling me, I mean, Nick, D, even coming off this loss, if Nick Diaz announced he's fighting Jake Paul next, he's not getting less than $6 million. True. He's, he's, exactly. less, I mean, even, yeah, he's at least getting three. Yeah, he's getting six. I wouldn't show up for less than six. Nick Diaz is going to bring a whole bunch of fans along with him. He's going to bring a whole bunch of fans with him. That fight... That fight's a huge fight. Him fighting Logan, Nate Diaz against Nick Diaz against Jake Paul, Nate Diaz against Logan Paul on the undercard. That is a two million dollar pay per view if I've ever seen one. No, you're right. You're I don't see how I don't see how their teams haven't managed to. Well, obviously, maybe the UFC's blocking it. I didn't think about that. Maybe the UFC's blocking it. But even with that, even with that being said, how do you have guys with that sort of cachet and that sort of name value not have some kind of endorsement or some kind of UFC affiliated? Um, you know, position or 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 something that they could build off. You can't be as popular. Nick hasn't fought in six years, and how many people were screaming for him? There's champions who don't get that kind of respect. Tyron Woodley never got the love that Nick Nick Diaz or Nate Diaz got. How do they how do they not have something where they're making money, whether they're fighting or not? I don't understand that. That's what I don't understand. How how is he even in a position to have to take a fight he doesn't want to take? He shouldn't have to. He should be just chilling. He should have so much money and so many opportunities that this sort of situation never happens. Yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that. I want to move on um, because we have one more big fight to talk about before we get on to John Jones. And I want to talk about Alexander Usyk beating Anthony Joshua um, via unanimous decision on Saturday. And I see a lot of people, I think that was on Saturday as well, too. I see a lot of people talking about that fight. And I have my first thought, Schwan, was is this considered an update or an update, an upset? Was this an upset to see Usyk get the victory? And, Not and to me. so why? Not to me. I told people when Joshua lost to Ruiz, I was the only person who called it. I told them what was going to happen, and I told them what rounds was going to happen. I told people months ago, he's not beating Usyk. There's no way he's beating Usyk. And people kept telling me his chin's fine. He's such a great boxer. First of all, he's not a great boxer. Anthony Joshua is a great boxer for a heavyweight, which is different than being a great boxer. It's like saying well, this guy is a great technical striker. Yeah, for a heavyweight, that doesn't mean anything. That means, that in another division, that means you're okay. 
Joshua is a good boxer for a heavyweight. He's not a good, great defensive, offensive counter boxer overall. Pound for pound, as a straight up technical boxer, he's not in my top 10, even close to it. Secondly, his chin is not what it used to be. So whether he's boxing or not, he can't ever push the pace or enforce his will or his physicality because that puts you in the line of fire for counters. He doesn't have any faith in his ability to take big shots anymore after the Ruiz fight. So now, when he even when he can control a guy with his jab and kind of corner them and, and put shots together, he won't ever ramp up the volume because he's afraid if I walk into a hot a big one, I might be out or I'll be so hurt that the guy will be able to overwhelm me. So he can no longer really maximize his size, his length, or his power. Um, in the fight, if I was in his corner, I would have said coming out instead of swinging and jabbing for his head and swinging for head punches against a guy who is quicker than you, who is lighter than you, who is more technical than you, who has better positioning than you, who has more defensive awareness and defensive anticipation than you, you know what I would do? I would have been jabbing shoulders, chest, body, and been all body attack, maybe body, head, body, head, body, head, because the body can't go anywhere. You can tee off to the body, cut into that gas tank, find your rhythm so you can start landing your headshots. But he didn't really start going to the body until like, what, the fourth or fifth round, maybe even the sixth round. How do you go against a much better boxer who's much better conditioned, much more durable and much more technical, and you're going to try and knock them out, throwing bombs to the head? That makes no sense whatsoever. I, I, I have no idea what they were thinking. And so he goes to the body late, cuts into the round. But once again, he can't ever really turn it up because he's afraid of what Usyk is going to fire back at him. Because Usyk is a very technical fighter. He's very precise. He throws with efficiency. He throws with accuracy. And he's got enough power to get your respect. And if you're coming in on him, that power gets doubled. So since Anthony Joshua couldn't find – he once again, Joshua is a fighter who's been fighting flawed fighters. Ruiz had his conditioning – all the other guys he fought were heavyweights who either were big and strong but can't box, could box a little bit but weren't good athletes, could box a little bit but were really fragile. He had a key hold exploit them in strategically and technically. There was no hole to exploit in Usyk. Usyk's a far better boxer. And strategically, the only thing he could do was use his power and his physicality to wear him down. But once again, if you try to use your power and weight and to wear someone down, that means you're going to eat a certain amount of punishment. And if you can't take it, then you can't, you, can't, you can't use that game plan. So to me, it was just a matter of whether Usyk would gas or not. If Usyk could maintain his, his composure, keep fighting at that volume, not just making a miss, but making a miss and making him pay and do it at the same pace from round one to round 12, then Usyk was going to always win, in my opinion. The only question was, was he going to be able to maintain that pace when Joshua started landing shots and getting to the body? Once I saw that he could, he could ramp it back up or maintain that pace, I didn't see a way Joshua was going to win. Joshua could have sold out for a knockout, but Joshua has no faith in his chin, so he can't ever sell out because selling out means you're going to get clipped. And you think my power can get him before his power gets me. Joshua doesn't have any faith in his chin. He thinks if somebody's power gets to him, it's a wrap. He's been boxing very safety first, very cautious, trying to be defensive. He's just being cautious. He's not being defensive. He's being cautious because he doesn't want to get caught. And you can't fight with one arm behind your back. And that's essentially what Joshua's doing. He can't use his best physical tools because he's so concerned about his lack of physical tools in the area of durability and recuperate and his recuperative abilities. You saw late in that fight, Usyk almost had him out. And earlier in the fight, he hit him with a short right hand, I think. I can't remember. He had him rocked. He buckled him in the first three rounds. And once he buckled him, Joshua started getting real hesitant again. He started getting real cautious. 
and 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 that's basically what ultimately undid him. He's facing a better fighter, and the one advantage is he has he can't and he can't enforce it because he doesn't know he can handle what's going to come back at him. So let me ask you this: What is what is the impact of this defeat at the? Um, what is the impact of, of this defeat for heavyweight boxing? How does this kind of change the tide of some of the future fights that we have playing? We have the um, we have Wilder and Fury in what two weeks or so. What does it set up after that for um, both of these men? Well, this is the thing. Everybody forgets this. I admire Joshua for taking on a very dangerous fight. Fight fighting Ruiz is a dangerous fight. He's fought the best guys available, so he should be given respect for that. I'll give him full respect for that. Once again, it's a heavyweight, and some of these guys are past their prime, but still, he fought the best opposition at heavyweight. He's, he's got the best resume at heavyweight. But people forget, we were supposed to have a Wilder Joshua fight. That didn't happen. Why? Because he lost to Ruiz. Now we're supposed to have the, he built himself back up. We're supposed to have Wild, we're supposed to have Joshua Fury. All Fury has to do is be Wilder. All Joshua has to do is be Huzik. Once again, we lost the two biggest events. In, bo- in heavyweight boxing now, we lost him because of an Anthony Joshua loss. That's not disrespect to him. It's a fact. Walter Joshua was going to be huge, but he got knocked out by Ruiz. He built himself back up. Fury, we had more questions about Fury versus Joshua than we had about Joshua versus Usyk. And once again, the two biggest, we're going we're gonna to get better fights now because the best guys are winning. So we'll get better fights, but we're not going to get bigger events. And what really helps us fight a, a, a sport build and expand is the big events, the big sexy matchups. When you have a Super Bowl versus this guy and this guy, or you have a AFC championship, Peyton versus versus Brady, or you have a NBA matchup where it's the Nets versus the Lakers, that helps expand the sport because it brings in everybody. It brings in the hardcores, it brings in the kind of sorters, and it brings in the casuals. It draws all that attention and it, it spreads around the sport and it helps build a sport further moving forward the two biggest events we would have had to help this sport moving forward are no longer there. Even if he fights Joshua Wilder or, or Fury later, it's never going to be as big as it should have been. It's like, it's, it's going to be Pac-Man versus Floyd, which was still a huge fight, but it wasn't nearly as huge as it would have been if it would have happened four years ago. It's going to be the same thing. So we're going to get Wilder versus Fury. We'll get um, Joshua versus Usyk. He's going for the rematch. And then basically all around it, it's just going to be heavyweights jockeying for position to see if they can get into position to get their title fight before a big undisputed title fight between the what the heavyweights is made, either between uh, between uh, Usyk and Fury. I don't know if the Usyk-Wilder fight would ever come off. I don't know how that negotiation would go. So uh, if Wilder wins, I don't know that we'll ever see unification. If Fury wins, I'm almost absolutely positive we would see a unification between him and Usyk. Good stuff there, man. I really appreciate your breaking down that from a boxing standpoint. Um, what that guy, wait, 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 what that one more thing, thing. really means. Joshua can still win this rematch. My only question is, how is he going to win it? His chin is not going to get any better, and he would have to make some either stylistic changes or some technical adjustments. And I don't, given that Usyk was so far ahead of him, I don't know what technical adjustment he could make that's going to close that guy. He'd be more aggressive and be more of a puncher and a brawler and hang all over him. But against a guy with that kind of poise and that kind of, that much amateur and pro experience, doing that is going to get you countered big at least two to three times around. 
I don't know that Joshua can take two to three big shots around anymore. So I admire him for wanting the rematch. I'm just not sure what he can do in this short period of time to make up the difference. This guy isn't like Ruiz. He's not going to come in out of shape and be out of focus. It's Mm -hmm. very hard to to find the hole in the armor. Very true there, sir. Let's talk about the main topic, I guess, that everybody's really talking about. Now that John Jones has been arrested again, mere hours after being inducted into the Hall of Fame for his fight with Alexander Gustafsson, what, 2013, he was arrested in Vegas for domestic violence, um, domestic assault, I believe, and also um, damaging a car. Um, As more news has come out about this, I saw that he assaulted his fiance in front of their children. How long have they been engaged for? Like 13 years? (sighs) Dude, I think they've been engaged since he wrecked that car. So what was that, 2012, 2011? Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a minute. So, he was arrested. Um, he's out now. He's back to posting on social media. Yeah. Um, we're not going to talk about our thoughts about this, but I do have a pretty interesting question that's kind of popped up about whether or not the UFC should cut him. And I am at a point where I think that it's a conversation they need to be having, but it's also a conversation that they need to be having with the understanding that if they make that move and they were to release him, then they need to be ready for when Conor McGregor fucks up too or when someone else messes up down the line. It sets a precedent that they have to stick by for the future. I mean, this is like his fourth incident, fourth or fifth incident that we know of. So if they were to take a stance to um, cut him and get him out of the UFC, I, I wouldn't be mad at that. I don't think there's any arguing that. But it opens up a slippery slope that I think that they have to stand by. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, um, it's like you said, that's why they, they're very judicial, picky when they're doing certain enforcement. I think that's why Dana kind of, for the most part, unless you're making the UFC look bad specifically, I think that's why Dana doesn't really enforce anything. I mean, he really doesn't. A lot of guys have been woman beaters and, and, uh, drug addicts and kill people in car accidents and gone on rampages with trucks and all this nonsense. That's nothing new in mixed martial arts. That's nothing new in combat sports, to be quite honest. And Dana's never really come down on somebody. He's always kind of let the law do their thing and been kind of uh, kind of loose or, or not really want to discuss Well, I you can't really discuss that. That's a legal issue. That has nothing to do with me. That's a legal issue. Because he understands the nature of the people he's dealing with, and he can't afford to cut off his nose to spite his face. You know, he's not going to miss out on a two million buy just because Conor McGregor threatened to kill someone. He's not going to miss out on a million dollar or half a million buy because John Jones likes to do coke and sleep with prostitutes or whatever it is he does. He's not going to miss out on that. So he leaves it completely in the hands of the legal system. And if the legal system has not enforced something or put somebody away in jail, then he just figures, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I'm going to do. And if they change their mind, then at some point that person is going to go to jail and do what they have to deal. I'm not going to undercut the UFC for that. And he can always use the logic that these are not our employees. These are independent contractors who we just use. So if he's if he's a criminal right now, he's not a criminal. So we'll schedule him a fight. If he turns out to be a criminal later on, we just cut ties because he's in or we don't really cut ties, but 
we'll just let him sit, do his time, pay his service to society. And then if he wants to come back and have a redemption story, we can allow him that platform to do so. It's a genius plan if you think about it. He puts all the onus on the fighters in their camps and it, nobody can ever really question him. If you're going to question Dana White about how he's handling this and what he thinks about it, then I have a question for you. Why are you not posing questions to Mike Winklejohn and Greg Jackson? Because if we expect Dana White to know about this, how the, hell do, how the hell do the people who've been coaching him for almost 20 years not know what the fuck's going on in his personal life? Because Dana White can just, hey, you want to ask me questions? I run a billion dollar business. I'm all over the globe. I can't keep track of every single person. But you know who is around him every day? Greg Jackson, go ask him. And he hates Greg Jackson anyway, so he'll point the finger at him in a second. It's a built-in buffer system that Dana White has because I can't hate on this. I can't hate on Greg Hardy. If American Top Team will bring him on, who am I to judge? They're with him every day. They're co-signing him. I'm not co-signing him. I'm not co-signing him. They're co-signing. They're telling me to use him. They brought him to me. I'm just a businessman and trying to get ratings and letting somebody have a platform. My hands are my hands aren't dirty. My hands are dirty. He's an independent contractor. I didn't hire him. He's not. He's not getting insurance and benefits. There's no 401k. He does a job. We pay him for it. We send him on his way. You can't hold it against me for letting him man work. He has a right to earn a living. If you want to get mad at somebody, get mad at the camp who lets him train and prepare to be a fighter in the UFC. They could just cut him off, and I would have no choice. I couldn't use an untrained guy. I can't use an untrained guy. He has to train somewhere. So he he, he gets to sidestep all this. And to be quite honest, um, I don't know what they do with him, but they're not going to let him go because they don't want anybody else having the chance to use him. They just don't. John Jones is not a Conor McGregor. He's not a Ronda Rousey, but he's right in that BJ Penn tier. He has a steady, dedicated, focused fan base that has always backed him up regardless of the nonsense he's been involved. Now, I don't know if they'll do it in this case, but why wouldn't they? MMA fans are terrible. So um, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I, I don't think he's going to let him go. And I don't think Dana's going to feel any pressure because Dana's already got three, four, five buffers in between him and the situation. And for you to get to Dana, you've got to go through every single other person to figure out what it is about John Jones that's allowing this to happen. His trainers, his family, his management. Dana White is really the last person on the list, if we're being real about this. He's really the last person on this list because it's not an employee of his. It's an independent contract who he hires upon occasion. So, um, If they cut him, let me ask you this. Do you think that Scott Coker and Bellator would touch him, or is he 100% toxic and not available? I don't know. I don't know at this stage because he's going to demand a lot of money. But to be honest, if John Jones goes to Bellator, I mean, that's a whole bunch of fresh matchups. And to be quite honest, most of those guys aren't in his tier right now. I mean, you can get. I mean, I hate to think like this, but you can get John Jones versus Yoel Romero, John Jones versus Ryan Bader rematch, John Jones fighting for the heavyweight title against uh, Nemkov, or you know, or Chet Congo, or he could fight Phil Davis. There's just a lot of tantalizing matchups when you have somebody with John Jones's cache and Q rating going in. I mean, Bellator, Bellator would get all-time ratings. You know, he's it, you could really sell John Jones. I mean, John Jones is still considered one of the best fighters in the world. So now you have a pound-for-pound pound guy in your division, and most likely he's going to stomp the hell out of most of those people. Like, that's great. That's great for them. I don't know that they do it, but it might be worth a gamble. You know, it might be worth a gamble. That's a big signing. You tell me that wouldn't be all over. That's a big signing. And Greg Harden, UFC is a big signing. John Jones, the Bellator is a huge signing. Yeah, I mean, it would definitely be a huge signing. Um, 
I think Viacom has the money to pay for it as well, too. Uh, I don't, I mean, this is, uh, we're kind of speculating right now. It's, it's a risk. It's, it's like we were talking about earlier. We talked about the John Jones fight, and I, was, I said something like, I was like, I think somebody else said on Twitter, I was just acting, I couldn't remember who said it, but John Jones is a risk. How many events have had to been pulled, rescheduled, or canceled because of John Jones' nonsense? So the UFC can't really ever, like we were talking about pushing him, the UFC can't ever, could never really invest in Jones because his behavior was so erratic. And I don't know that anybody else could really invest in him either because, I mean, he's clearly not at his peak anymore. But now he's getting in the kind of trouble that you can't just, you know, I hate to say it, but cheating on your wife and partying, that's going to get you more fans. But beating up your fiancé and, and all this other stuff, it, it's getting to the point where it's like, you can't really justify it or, 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 or you don't know, laugh at it anymore. This is like, and, and if it happened once, we don't know how long it's been happening. I don't know. Yeah. If it, I don't know if his family knows about it. You, you think they'd have to, you know, does her family know about it? Like, is this the first time it, this could really, depending on how this goes and, and if she, whether she's willing to press charges or whatever, what they find this, this could get really ugly for him. Obviously. Well, obviously he like if, if it's happening, I always believe that if it's happening out in public and, and stuff like this is going down, that's not the first time it's happened. So we'll we'll really kind of see what that looks like. But um, there are some definite issues here. But if they cut them, they're creating a slippery slope that they would have to then stick to, which I don't think that they want to do at let, any point. Let me ask you a question. Just hypothetically, you know how John Jones has been standing his ground like, I'm not going to fight till they pay me what I'm worth? Any chance just to kind of get some of this heat off him he decides, you know what? I decide I'm just gonna gonna be a warrior and take on the next guy because the story would come up, but it would get come up and be pushed over by his chance of going into heavyweight to be his greatness. You know what I'm saying? Like, and you could if he wins, they'll kind of push that story a little bit behind and keep pushing forward the fact that he's winning. You know, kind of like the same way Floyd Mayweather had those things, but he was always winning. So it never really, really came out because you always talk about his big win and how people were hating on him and. He's not involved in any stuff because he kept winning. So you never had that that mo- slow momentum where you could really get on him. You think John Jones all of a sudden drops his money demands and says, you know, I got to get a fight so I can change the narrative on myself. And the thing is, it's he's lost all of his leverage. So if he had any leverage about against the UFC when it came to making a big money heavyweight fight, he lost all of that. So he's if he was to take a fight and someone if Dana comes to him, hey, you know what will help this go away? Let's take a fight in six in six months. It will be stupid. People will be like, oh, come on, what are we doing here? But it's the MMA way of handling things. And it's, it's a lot of ways. It's a lot of ways. When you're winning, like you hear about these teams and other sports, they're winning, and then they start losing. You find out they're drunks and they're this and they're that. Why did I know that before when they're winning? Because nobody wants to fuck up. There, I mean, the Dennis. I just watched the this this. I mean, like the Dennis Rodman portion of the of, of the Last Dance, where he was going to Vegas for ben, for benders and stuff like that. It didn't matter because they were winning. Um, so he, that, that's why it worked. It would be this. It, it, it would it would be pretty low for the UFC to do that. But again, like we said, it's the UFC, and that would not surprise me at all. It helps them too because even though it's bad, it's bad publicity. It's still publicity. It's still going to get buys. It's still going to guarantee them spots on ESPN because he's got this thing. Like when Floyd, before he fought Cotto, he had he, he had prison 
hanging over his head. So he fought, he fought Cotto. They went to prison. They they did documentaries. They did all these little videos and Showtime presentations for it. Like you could spin this in a way that makes you money on multiple platinum platforms in multiple ways. And Dana White's job is to make money. It's not to be. I mean, no offense. He he doesn't care about morals or character or. The only character he cares about, will you fight through a submission in the cage? Will you take it? We take two punches to land one. He doesn't care about your actual character. He doesn't really care. He cares about, he doesn't care about your well-being, except as it pertains to your ability to show up and do your job. Nick Diaz is a clear example of that. John Jones is another. Greg Hardy is another. There's a lot of fighters who probably should not be fighting in here because of things they're doing outside of it, or just their mental stability or emotional stability. They shouldn't be doing this. But here we have full cards, and you find out, guys, my mom just thought I was a wreck. Why are you fighting? Who allowed you to do this? They didn't even ask you if you had a choice. Well, I, I need to pay my rent. A multi-billion dollar company couldn't at least give you your show money? Like, what, what are we talking about? Nope. Um, Julie Ketsy had a very important tweet about finding a way to give fighters mental health services. I think that that's something that we should really be talking about more, but I doubt it will I thought it would probably. I thought it would happen. It's gonna. It's gonna cost organizations money, and they don't want to. Sh- if they're not sharing any, of their, the NBA will do it because they're sharing revenue. NFL could be sharing some revenue. UFC don't want to share nothing. They ain't coming out of pocket for that. You want mental health? Either get it yourself because we pay you to do a job, or you quit fighting. Like if your mental health is so important to you and, and you can't do both, then quit fighting and take care of your mental health and your family. That's what Dana White's gonna say. I'm not making these guys fight. If they're really that concerned about their mental health and their family, stop fighting, get a regular job, and do something that is not going to jeopardize your family, your mental health. You're putting fighting ahead of your family and your kids. I'm not making you do it. You're choosing to do it. You could go and work at McDonald's, work in an office, make your $50,000 a year, have your mental health. You're saying your mental, your mental health and the well-being of your family is not as important as you potentially being UFC champion. That's a you problem. That's not a me problem. That's exactly how he's going to spin that. That's very there, true, sir. So we're going to go ahead and close the show out on that point there. Um, Shawan, why don't you let everybody know what you're working on? Um, I'm going to be working on an article that's going to be basically breaking down some breaking down sparring, what it's for, what it's not for, how it's used correctly, how it's not, and why some people just never get better even though they're sparring all the time. Just kind of give you some ins and out of things I've learned working with different camps, sitting in sparring sessions, sitting in on fight camps and watching. And, and then you see people see the product they put out and you're like, well, I know why it's like this because this is why. So I'm just going to kind of give a little bit of insight and it's kind of going to be kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit, but also to aspiring fighters, or maybe, maybe established fighters who have really bad habits, kind of tell you some things you need, some fundamental things you need to follow if you want to get the best out of your training especially as it pertains to sparring other people. And then um, I'm working on an article for a fight between um, James Gallagher and is it Chris Mix? I can't remember Bellator. But uh, yeah, that's it. Good stuff there, sir. I will be covering as much pro wrestling as possible this week, as usual. Um, Working on some MMA as well, too. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close out. Uh, as always, you can check us out at MMARatings.net in as many places as possible. Please be sure to like and subscribe to our show here in our podcast. And also um, check us out on YouTube every week. I am Raphael Garcia with my co-host, Shawan Humes. And we'll be back next week for episode 219 of the Good MMA Podcast.
Have a great night, everyone.